Welcome, friends, to another episode of Wampa Radio. This is episode number 12. Of course, we are a podcast about Star Wars Unlimited and so much more. The strategies, the deck lists, the news, the notes, the naughtiness of it all, I guess. We're going, uh, we have left somebody, uh, unfortunately, this week. We have, uh, we, have, we have shed the Doa for this week. Yeah, and it's mostly my fault. We had some creative differences, and he said, you know what? I'm out as long as that guy is still on the show. Whoa. And I... I no, will... No, no, I, <laughs> I, you can't, I didn't even know there was a choice. I mean, let's be real. I mean, if I've given the choice, Charmer, I'm sorry, man. Uh, okay, so uh, next week, you will. You, uh, we invite you all to tune into Shmampa Shmadio uh, with Flake and Doa. <laughs> Episode one's going to be amazing. I'm kidding. I would never leave you. And Charmer Bot. Oh my God! All right, never mind. I take that back immediately. <laughs> <laughs> immediately made you regret it. Yeah. So, uh, with that in mind, I guess we should actually dive into the episode today. We're going to be talking about the complexities of a two-lane game because while it's not something that's new on the market, it has certainly been done before. That doesn't mean that a lot of folks have actually played a game like that, and I think that it's going to be really important when. We get more cards released and revealed, and as we eventually start going through them and determining whether we think they're actually good or not, part of understanding that analysis is understanding why we might think things are good or bad, and it's in part because of that two-lane game. So we are going to dive into that, but of course we have news and notes, and we also also always have the uh, Wampa Cave Pool of the Week. <laughs> So the Wampa Cave Pull of the Week, I mean, there's going to be a little bit of Doa influence in this episode for sure, because he kind of actually proposed this on last episode. Uh, we did clean up the verbiage, I suppose, the the way that we presented it, the language associated to how we presented the Cave Pull this week. But the Cave Pull this week is, of all the Imperial officers that Vader force chokes, who deserved it most? So the uh, options were Admiral Ozel, you had Nita, Motti, and Director Krennic. Uh, the way mm-hmm. that the way that Doa said this is like he said, "Who is the most chokeable? <laughs> Who's the most chokeable?" <laughs> in that case, it's just like sometimes you just don't like somebody's face. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, behind the scenes, I had said I think the answer is actually Hux, and I know that that's not Vader. But if the question is just who is the most chokeable Imperial officer, I think it's got to be Hux because that guy drives me up the wall but it's actually the person who wrote hux uh for two <laughs> reasons number one for making him chokeable uh in the first uh in the first movie and then for for some reason by the third mo- movie he became less of this imposing presence this commanding t- tyrannical presence and more of a comedic kind of throwaway you know that whole scene where what? he's like i'm the spy what you're the spy it's like what i want to know why that rubs me the wrong way in all honesty it felt like there wasn't enough build up and payoff and it felt like a worse version a cheaper version of what we got out of like agent callus and rebels right when he reveals himself to be you know the inside man leaking there was all of these little hints along the way and it felt kind of like built up toward it you also had that like nice moment you know, with some of the Rebels characters where, you know, they're stranded on a planet together and you kind of get this feeling like maybe he's not all bad. 
but you don't know if it's just like that one weird redeeming episode or if it's you know truly that he's not as bad as he seems like there was a bunch of stuff that led into it and then with Hux we just literally get like well I'm the spy and there's no emotional investment no payoff and it was just worse all the way around so it's also just, spoiler alert sorry if you haven't watched Rebels no, well, and you're early on you don't know I guess I got you know my bad I, I should have put the spoiler alert there but well I'm actually yeah I'm on a rewatch and I haven't gotten to that part yet but I did yeah he kind of knew but ultimately you're right when it comes to General Hux because well frankly you don't even realize that there's like a spy or a mole within the first order until the third movie and you're like okay so they're they they what like what why did why introduce right. something that nothing happens with it you know it, it, yeah it, it, so again like with rebels like you at least get mentions of fulcrum ahead of time right like there there is that build up and there's just nothing it's just literally like oh well i just wanted to have this line i don't you know care who wins i just want him to lose like <laughs> and then they kind of recycled that line in quantum mania where it's like i don't need to win i just need you to lose it's like all right like is it the same person writing these things probably i wouldn't be surprised quality. yeah um okay so oh with that out of the way right because i thought hux was the the most chokeable i'll just go ahead and say it uh, but because we haven't covered the actual results the person that i voted for was lorth nita and I will fully admit that this has nothing to do with him necessarily being uh, more chokeable from a personality standpoint. And this is instead my need for wordplay and dad puns, because when I look at that, I'm like, he need a choking. Oh right. I just had to vote for Nita. Sorry, Lorth. But with a last name like that, you need a choking. <laughs> I swear to God. OK, <laughs> first of all. I hate you. Second of all, <laughs> okay. Uh, this is what happens when Doe is gone. Yeah, well, because he just keeps us at least on. He, he, in, uh, I said he intimidates us. He doesn't intimidate us. He's, he's a friend of ours, but he at least imposes his professionalism and we get it a little bit like the radiation of it like we come we come like when we're done recording we have a professionalism suntan based off of what he radiates kind of thing so when i was evaluating this and i was gonna give my vote there was the first one i was like okay i i don't think krennic deserved it uh krennic just may have it was just that he rubbed vader the wrong way like because in, in reality krennic did the work to you know, for yeah. the Death Star project, et cetera. Like, he was integral into that project becoming a success. I don't think that he he deserved it at all. Um, Ozil was an idiot, uh, and stupidity, in my opinion, doesn't deserve the death penalty. I think that stupidity more so deserves, uh, you know, that's where you just be like, okay, here's a, you're, you're now going to be commanding a Victory-class Star Destroyer that's patrolling, like, the outer rim looking for Minox or something like you give him an, an idiot's job. So this leaves Nita and Mahdi. And what I like about but and they're both of their, their chokings were the result of two completely different things. Number one was Nita was responsible for the Falcon and all them getting away. And he said, I take mm -hmm. responsibility. I will report this to Lord Vader. And then it cuts to like, apology accepted, Captain Nita. And he's just getting dragged away. I thought that was wicked cool. But that was 
a, a failed mission that was a gigantic bungle in terms of that. And I was like, it's got to be that. He deserved it because he failed at his job and whatnot. But then I was like, what did Mahdi do in terms of deserving it? Well, Mahdi insulted the, the, <laughs> the, the Dark Lord of the Sith, arguably the most feared and powerful Sith Lord, uh, arguably of all time, and just went up to his face and said, your, 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 your sorcerer's ways won't help us in locating the... And then, are you kidding me? You idiot. Listen, I, I think that's why he didn't deserve it. Because he... I actually feel like he's very similar to Krennic. When you think about the kind of asset you want if you are in the, the Empire, right? Like you're a part of the Imperial Navy, whatever. You want people that are ambitious and controllable and i think that the biggest thing that Mahdi did is he was kind of showing that he was not quite controllable right krennic all the ambition wants to like have his name you know written in the annals of the empire wants all that glory for himself but was also controllable and i think that's why vader ultimately chokes him it's just like a, a check like hey buddy cool your jets a bit but he lets him go i think Mahdi was taking it a little bit too far, but I still think that's an admirable trait. So Nita, as you said, just outright failed. And I also think, honestly, that's why Ozil also got it because yeah, you could just be demoted to the outer rim or whatever, but this is the empire, right? If we can't trust you, if we can't rely on you to get the job done, you are of no use to us. So I, I don't know. Mahdi was at least competent. He was just cocksure. And so... Well, he, I don't know. I don't know that he deserved it more than Nita. He could have gone the whole way. It was Tarkin who said, Vader, release him. And then, then that that happened, which was, you know, it was good and, and whatnot. So Mahdi owes him one. But I think that at the end of the day, like there's like both like Nita made a, a gigantic, colossal mistake. But he he stepped up and said, I'm going to take responsibility, pay the price. But. Dear Lord, give my regards to your balls, Admiral Mahdi, for being in that yeah. room and just straight up saying, like, looking him straight down the face and telling him that his silly sorcerer's ways are not going to do anything. You know, they have the most powerful thing in the universe now and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, I, there was one answer that was given in the Discord that I really want to read because I thought it was actually quite good. Uh, and I... I I love answers that take silly premises and treat them very, very seriously. So this one is from Threat Level Midnight, who replied to the the poll on Discord saying, uh, none, nobody deser deserved it. Fostering the fear of failure just creates a bunch of yes men that will tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. While this probably made Vader feel good, it no doubt created a lot of false intel and bad information about how well certain battles would go. It also probably led to a lot of the Empire's best and brightest knowing to sit stay away from positions anywhere near Vader. His habit of choking officers may have had short-term bumps in efficiency, but no doubt created long-term issues for the Empire. What a brilliant response that is. It is a fantastic response. And that's also, again, why I felt like Mahdi didn't necessarily deserve it. I also think that's why Tarkin stands up for him, because he knows he's still an asset, right? Same thing with Krennic. I think Krennic is everything you want in an Imperial officer, because, yeah, he is mouthy and he wants all that fame, but he also was not afraid to voice his opinion, right? Like that was a rare thing in the empire because of these chokings. It nails it. 
So thank you to Threat Level Midnight. Again, I, I voted for Mahdi. I thought that stepping up to Vader and sort of embarrassing him in front of every, you know, everybody at the party was a little bit bad. You said, who'd you say, Nita? Yeah, he needed choking. All right, I forgot about that. Probably because my brain <laughs> you, just... You already blacked it out. You totally. just disassociated. Like, all right, that didn't happen. 100% that's what happened. Here are the results, friends. Uh, in the lead was Admiral Mahdi at 45.8%. Admiral Ozel, 31.3%. Captain Nita, Lorth Nita, 14.6%. And our good friend, Director Krennic, Orson Krennic, at 8.3%. So that is your cave poll of the week. New cave polls every Sunday, we hope. Fingers crossed it was late this week. Uh, so you can go to at Wampa Radio every Sunday to cast your vote for the cave poll of the week. If you have a suggestion for a cave poll, I think we like those too. Why not? Why not? All right. News. Uh, news this week. I don't think there was anything particularly, you know, um, juicy from the perspective of other other than like card spoilers and such. We had another vote of like, what do you want to see? I think upgrade one. But let's let's roll through these charmers. Let's roll through the card spoilers that we haven't got to yet. Again, we're doing this we're doing this early because I'm going to be on a plane in about 16 hours heading to las vegas for the uh, <laughs> you are adorable if you think you're going to be on a plane in 16 hours i'm calling it right now you're going to be on a plane in 18 maybe 19 hours after your standard canadian air delay well yeah okay for those who don't know who don't follow <laughs> my endeavors and my escapades in flesh and blood i have taken this year this this calendar year 2023 i have taken i think 28 flights for casting gigs across North America. Of those 28 flights, I believe 26 of them have been delayed. Of those 26, I believe that probably 18 of them are delays over an hour. And it is just, it is death, taxes, and flight delays is essentially the certainties of my life right now. But I, yeah. uh, Logan Peterson, who is your co-host in uh, Flesh and Pod, if you guys are fans of Flesh and Blood, I also invite you to go check out Flesh and Pod with Charmer and Logan. Logan actually messaged me. He wanted my itinerary because he's going to run odds and look at history of the flight to, to run actual odds to, for people to place bets on my flight uh, being delayed coming home from Las Vegas. And my and I told them I said also let's factor in the flake luck. The last time I took this specific flight, which was the noon flight Las Vegas to Toronto, my flight was delayed by, take a guess. Uh, an hour and a half. Nine hours. Oh, nine hours. Oh yeah, that was your long one. Wasn't there a storm or something back then though? There was. I believe there was a. There may have been a storm in Toronto, which essentially yeah, just right, right. screwed everything up. But. It just sucked because it was myself and it was I was there for my buddy's bachelor party and my buddy and all his and all my other friends, they're all from Montreal. So they took a flight from Las Vegas to Montreal. So their flight was leaving at 11. So I'm like, let's all jump in a cab together. I'll just wait the extra hour. No big deal. So I went. We hung out at their gate. They got out on time. My yep. flight while they were boarding said you are there's an hour delay. I was like, oh, damn it. OK, well, whatever. And I went to the 
I was contemplating going to the the get my flight changed to go to Montreal instead because there was plenty of space on that flight. And I was like, well, how bad can it be? Because I have family in Montreal. I'm like, I'll just go there. Maybe I'll hang out. I was like, how bad can it be? I'm overreacting. So I waited. And then that flight delay ended up turning out. We ended up pushing back at, I think it was 10 something PM. And with all the flight, with the time and the I think I landed and the sun was up. It was like 7 AM <laughs> the next day. And I was like, oh, nice. <laughs> this is great. So that's that whole story. But I, yeah, uh, Again, tangents of plenty. Let's get to the uh, let's get to the spoilers, Charmer. Let's start with the first one. This is the Starwing Scout. The Starwing Scout, which is a three-drop aggression space unit. It is uh, also I should uh, tell everybody this was wonderfully spoiled by Echo Base Gaming, friends of the show. Echo Base Gaming. Yeah, they did a cool video with it too. We missed this one. I think we actually, this one may have released just after we recorded the previous episode because this one I think is about a week old by now or maybe like four, yeah, four or five Yeah, it was shortly, I think, after we recorded. But uh, I do remember, like I said, that they, they had a very cool video and they released it. And this is actually, I, I should also let you know, this is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about the topic that's going to be our main topic for this week is because of this card. Uh, because I think that the two-lane system and having the initiative go hand-in-hand in, hand in terms of determining importance. And so to finish describing this card, uh, it is a three-cost space unit just in aggression as far as aspects go. There's a 4-1 stat line with the vehicle and fighter tags. But it says, when defeated, if you have the initiative, draw two cards. So this is the first card that we've had revealed that will kind of give you some additional bonuses if you have the initiative there are some units that i think just inherently have bonuses if you have the initiative like units with shield for example because that will give you priority for getting those value trades but this is a card that just straight up says hey if somebody has the initiative token they get a bonus and that's a pretty big deal because depending on the number of those cards that exist it could mean some very strategic gameplay with when to take the initiative because one of the things that we also haven't kind of really covered is that you can pass in the game without taking the initiative so because of the back and forth nature a turn ends when both players pass but if you think your opponent's going to keep taking actions and then you want to respond you can pass and then they have the decision of okay well do i want to pass and force the turn to end or do I want to keep taking actions and then they get to continue their turn? So there's already that depth. I, I kind of ran into that when I was playtesting at Gen Con, but this adds a completely different layer. I'm loving how aggression, you you brought this up. I think it was you or Doa. Ultimately, we were all just kind of uh, fawning over the fact that initiative and aggression now seem to be fairly married together. And I love that aspect because initiative means you go first on any given turn. And aggression means that you, you're you aggressive. You want to be the one going first. You want to be the, the first person putting your foot into the ring, and it all makes sense now. So we're going to eventually do episodes or an episode regarding uh, aspect breakdowns, key cards within them, how they play. And this is another big clue of a card. Uh, so it's a three-drop aggression space unit, Starwing Scout. It's a vehicle, it's a fighter, and it's a 4-1. And the 4-1 just again, just reeks of aggression. It reeks of it wants to hump the face. It knows that it's going to trade down to probably 
other units. But the the one downside that most aggressive decks have ever had in most card games charmer has always been card draw because everything is cheap everything dies it, you need to constantly replenish the battlefield and i mean look at hearthstone the reason why the most successful early hearthstone aggression lists were uh were warlock was because it had an ability that just drew a card it allowed you to replenish the hand now the other one was hunter but hunter had a lot of death rattle effects that constantly replenished the board itself ultimately though here with starwing scout we're seeing the the mosaic become clearer the pieces are fitting together and the framework of what this aspect wants to be i think that aggression being an aggro aspect people might think it's going to be a very easy to pilot type of thing it's just go face go face but it's going to demand a mastery of one it what is possibly the most complex aspect of this game which is the initiative token taking it well, passing etc we're, we're going to talk a bit about it some more when we get to the two lane part because it's going to be even more complicated than that but i will say this one other thing that i've been thinking a lot about recently is yes historically refilling your hand has been one of the things you look for when you're playing any sort of aggressive deck because your opponent wants to stall you out i actually think that star wars unlimited has something very unique with the draw two per turn and until we know what the kind of resource cap you want for your deck is for these aggressive lists there's a very real chance where you know if your resources top out at five or six cost cards you could hit that very quickly and then just transition to drawing two cards every turn while your opponent's still trying to ramp up and that's another way where you can kind of keep up with your opponent so i think that there's going to be a lot of things that we have to really kind of change the way we think about aggressive decks with this game as a result right because uh, again if you if you've got you know a cheap leader because we haven't seen all the leaders yet either but if you have a cheap leader that only costs like five and you are just really trying to go all gas no breaks then you know you'll play resources the first three turns and then you're basically just drawing two cards every turn thereafter as needed it's a it's an interesting bit i i do love the idea of somebody putting this down and the other person just going all right I'll even if they have plenty more to do just going I'll take the initiative and end my turn because then they can open up this only has one health right so they can mm -hmm. open up the following turn just pick it off real quick and then you've taken away a lot of the value there's going to be a lot of discussion about initiative and we're going to get into that in future episodes as we see more cards but that happens to be the Starwing Scout again revealed by friend of the show Echo Base Gaming we got a new leader uh, yes. which I think that a lot of us have basically agreed that this is one hell of a beastly leader. Yeah, and I'm actually very surprised that we get it early as a leader. So the leader is Boba Fett. This leader has the aspects cunning and villainy. It is a ground unit when it comes into play. So when it comes into play, it uh, costs five, or at least you have to have the five resources essentially to trigger the epic action. It has a 4-7 stat line. The tags or the keywords on it are Underworld and Bounty Hunter. But it says, when this unit completes an attack. Now, that phrasing makes me believe it has to survive as well. Uh, but when it completes an attack, if an enemy unit left play this phase, ready up to two resources. So 
you get this four seven unit and the seven is really the big deal in my mind right seven health means you can likely get an attack in and survive so you're getting a value trade but then you also get to ready up to two resources now the interesting bit and i love that this is in cunning as a result uh the interesting bit is that you can't really use this as true ramp because you can't use those two resources unless they've already been expended on something right it's not like you just get two more resources for the turn so you have to have already played a card then you get this attack in for the trigger to get the benefit and then it allows you to play more cards so it is a very high tempo play you know when you talk about tempo you talk about the number of things you can do that kind of speed up the game clock but it's not true ramp in that regard, and it does require sequencing. You can't lead off your turn with this either. You have to have already expended some resources to get the value. Also, now, just well, just real quick to finish, as a leader card, the passive ability before he comes into play is when an enemy unit leaves play, period. So for any reason, you may exhaust this leader if you do ready a resource. Yeah, so that part is what intrigues me most. Again, that is the non-deployed version of it which is essentially something dies uh when it, when you kill something you get a free you get a free resource backup so it's going to uh, again cunning we talked about aggression and importance of initiative token here is cunning and the importance of sequencing and planning which again alludes to proper cunning proper things like that you know so i think boba fett is going to be a hero that a lot of players are going to they're going to gravitate to not just because it's the fet man but also because having additional resources like you said it's not true ramp in the sense that you're having access to a wider pool of resources it's merely that you can double tap on some of those resources where necessary i especially yeah. with the when this completes an attack if part feels interesting to me because again it has to be it has to be alive i feel like the unit version of this leader is going to be a high priority target like most of the leaders are going to be but what this does is it doesn't allow you to cheat out bigger things it allows you to cheat out more things and that can be that can be overwhelming well so this is why I'm really excited. When I look at the cards we've already seen from Cunning, which granted is not a lot, but I do like what I've seen and they already kind of have a mini theme. And that is cards that you would traditionally associate with the word tempo in other card games. So the one that stands out to me is like Waylay, which is not true removal, but it does bounce a unit. Now, in these kind of back and forth style games where we're passing one action to another, a card like Waylay might not have the same level of value or uh, impact because if they have the resources available they can just replay the unit it does buy you a turn sure but it's not it's not the level of like an unsummon or something in magic and it's also more expensive than unsummon that being said something like boba fett means that you can set up these very big uh, swing turns where if you've got your five resources you could play a four cost unit right so you've expended some of your resources. Then your opponent takes an action, comes back to you. You play Boba Fett using your epic action, and then you get rid of a unit, trigger, go back up to three, then waylay something else, and all of a sudden you've got a value trade, you bounce to their best unit, and you played a four drop all in one turn. Like That's a big swing turn in terms of board presence. 
But the importance of that, again, is planning and sequencing. Sequencing, yes. It is going to be very much, I think, the aspect that rewards you the most for understanding the flow of the game. Wonderful. After that, we got a cool card. This one is from Vigilance Aspect. It is a two-cost upgrade. Got another upgrade. Yes. Uh, this also, I think, is cool because... Uh, so this one is Entrenched. Entrenched is a condition of an upgrade, a plus three, plus three, and gives the unit the game text attached unit can't attack bases. So, so here's why... The, the various reasons why I like this charmer. Number one, it's because... Upgrades are no longer just weapons. They're no longer just tangible things. They can be, like it says here, conditions or ambient effects or situational awareness or whatever. It can be, it can be a, a, a something that's happening while we're going or a positional related thing. The artwork itself just, it's, I think that's Mimban. I think that's the, the scene from, uh, or, you know, from, uh, what is it, Solo. But ultimately, this is a card that on the surface, you're like, wow, the first thing that pops to mind immediately is jam this on a Sentinel and then let, let it just stand tall. It's a cheap card at two cost with the Vigilance aspect. It's a plus three, plus three. You're above rate for an upgrade. Who cares if you can't attack base? To me, this is something you'd put on your one drop, as it were. You put it on something really cheap to really buy time in the early game. But also, you came up with a really cool idea with this like imagine let's say it's late in the game if you top deck this you're not exactly upset no i don't i don't think so so one of the things that i had talked about, well there's a couple of things i had talked about but one of the things i had talked about is the idea of using it like pacifism from magic the gathering where you can potentially play this on an opposing unit so that they can't attack your base now I checked in the quick start rules. It does not say whether or not you can upgrade opposing units. Some folks in the community discord for the game uh, say that they have gotten confirmation from the developers that you can play upgrades on opposing units. Now, that opens up some interesting play patterns if true, not just because of Entrenched, but another friend of mine uh jason sent me a message saying yeah it'd be really wild if that's the case because if your opponent has a vader and you have a hand with three vader's lightsabers you could play all three just to get the comes into play effects to nuke their other units like vader just turns on them and starts wiping them which is also interesting uh you can't do that for one because vader's lightsaber is unique right so you can only get the comes into play effect but i just love the idea of like oh there's a vader on the board i can get the comes into play if i just give up the facts that like i'm putting it on my unit sort of thing i don't know there's there's a lot there so we'll have to wait to get like true hard confirmation because i haven't personally seen it i'm sure it'll come up next dev live stream but even just thinking through possible scenarios like that got me really excited for how I viewed upgrades. And like you said, now it's a condition. So when you think about like our custom cards we talked about and you had that Thrawn's Orders idea, that's within the realm of possibility now. You and I have also tossed around the idea of, you know, pilots as upgrades. So like you play the Han Solo upgrade for the Millennium Falcon to boost that. Well, that's within the realm of possibility now as well in my mind because we know upgrades can be a bunch of things so just a, a really cool teaser 
all like in a little capsule. Again, I love reveal season because you, they give you a little and then there's so much more info that you kind of get from it, even though they gave you a little. Well, the especially the initial spoiler, excuse me, spoiler season, because now we know you're, we're not just getting the cards and what they do. We're getting kind of these little bits and pieces of the nuanced rules that that are not printed in the quick start you know so we get to see what is possible not just what exists and i like that aspect of uh this season as well so that is entrenched uh we have a two-pack of reveals from rolling dice and taking names another awesome contributor to the community what do we got for for this uh, next set here Oh, man, these both had me so excited when I saw this reveal. Uh, the first one is a event or command. It is called resupply. I know this is a shocker, but the kind of keyword tag is supply. Now, resupply costs three, and it says put this event into play as a resource. So if you've played any other card game, this is affectionately known as ramp, where you are ramping up the number of resources you have. So you're spending resources now and kind of not you know, advancing your board state, but it allows you to play things faster. And when we combine this with the card that we had the pleasure to reveal, what I call a DJ Death Star, that means that command is kind of slowly but surely becoming the aspect where I expect a lot of ramping, right? So that you can play these big, powerful, you know, Star Destroyers or other big units, which, you know, I'll let you do the other one, but there was, as you said, a pair of reveals, and I think that these two went very well together. Oh, thank you for letting me do this one. But uh, really quickly about this card, if you're a Hearthstone player, this is Wild Growth. That's all it is. It's Wild Growth. Yeah. Um, gain Magic and empty man. Rampant Growth. Yeah, it's the same thing. And we've seen this in many... I mean, Magic has multiple different versions of this, which is basically put it on... Uh, it costs three. Put it on a land. That land can tap for two different two different resources, and there's usually an additional effect, like gain life or do whatever. Uh, wild growth in Hearthstone, it's the same thing, and they all cost three. And I think that you know when it comes down to it, sometimes this is basically can I copy your homework? Sure, but you know th- that's that's what this is. Resupply is wild growth, but for ramp, love to see it. Next card, oh baby. Oh, baby, we were talking about this when we saw the Star Destroyer and we saw, no, sorry, when we initially saw the ATST and then we saw the Star Destroyer, we were all contemplating what is going to be the Star Destroyer for ground. And we have it here. It is the Blizzard Assault ATAT, an eight drop ground unit with aspects of command and villainy. It is a nine attack, nine body Imperial vehicle walker texas freaking ranger and he's look he looks like he's wait like like winding up for a roundhouse he's, kick he's too. he's getting ready to roundhouse somebody especially with this game text uh so here is why this card is so damn good it's not unique too so go ahead play three of them um when this unit attacks and defeats a unit you may deal excess damage from this attack to an enemy ground unit it is basically overwhelm but you could choose a unit. It tramples over your your thing that it kills and crushes poor Dak Router at the gunner seat. It does all of that. <laughs> it's so good. Um, I love this because when we're talking about ramp, this is the payoff. This is why you play DJ Death Star because you want to get to the Blizzard Assault Vehicle. And, and 
this is the top end, I would imagine. Uh, it's an uncommon. We're probably going to see like actual Blizzard 1. We're probably going to see actual Tempest 1. We're going to see the unique um, um, AT-ATs. But for now, this is the uncommon one. But like, think about it. It's you drop DJ Death Star, you get a little bit of extra ramp. Maybe you resupply and then you play uh, your ATST, and then you do some more ramping. And on turn f- six, you're cheating out a Blizzard ATAT, and your opponent is still scratching their head and figuring out why did my Boba Fett die when uh, an ATAT squashed my c3po you know like that's that's the beauty of a card like this yeah uh you actually touched on one of the things that i was going to mention which is because this tramples over what i love about it is you actually get more benefit by purposefully picking on the little guy if this crushes a one one then you get to just deal eight to another unit so they might have another huge eight eight or their own atst you can attack a 1-1 with this and then crush the other unit, but you don't take the damage to your body. It doesn't get into combat directly. So this thematically kind of rewards you for literally just stepping on the littlest thing possible and crushing it into the snow. So that's number one. The other reason that I'm a big fan of this card being paired with the ramp reveal is that usually when you are trying to accelerate your resources, you're doing so at the cost of developing your board. And this is also a great series of reveals for our main topic today, which is going to be covering the two lanes and why having a board is important in a game like this. So what this card does is it allows you to play catch up because your opponent, by the time this comes down, they should have a much better board state than you. Even if you're playing other stuff along the way, you are likely ramping, playing cards like DJ Death Star, like Resupply, so that you can get to these expensive cards sooner. And that means they're going to have cool stuff this comes down and allows you to start attacking and get those two for ones so that you can clean up the board and tilt things back in your favor or back towards like that even 50 50 split so having a car like this is really important on the top end well you're sacrificing board development for uh resource development and then the payoff comes later we see this in various different other card games um you know green does it well in magic there's decks out there that are out there right now that basically just forego any type of board related development in in exchange for getting more land on the board uh druid in hearthstone does it very well and i if i'm going to equate this to something flesh and blood related this is the the prism this is the aura prism uh, type of of approach which is I'm going to let you beat the piss out of me for just a little bit, but eventually I'm going to come to a, a, a fork in the road. There's going to be this, this turning point where suddenly we're at, we're kind of equal, but I have the advantage wherein my stuff is better than yours and it's harder for you to get rid of it. And that's where things turn around. Playing this type of ramp strategy to attain the Blizzard Assault ATAT. And again, we don't know what the other ATATs are if there's going to be some in the set. But if this is the high end and this is just an uncommon, you can bet your ass that it's going to have some significant payoff. Wherein you're gonna be like, yeah, no problem. Like I'm gonna take you might even forego having a base that has game text for a base with more life so that you can withstand the early turns, have that cushion, so that later on you're like you said that nine nine walker is if you don't if you don't harass and do anything with their little dudes 
it might be in your best interest. You might be like, okay, now it's Walker time. And now my Blizzard Walker is going to kill that one drop that you that you dropped on the board that may have been responsible for about six damage against my health. But now I'm going to step on him and Vader's the one who's going to be taking like paying the price for this or Boba Fett's the one who's going to be taking the price on this uh, or paying the price on this. That's why I love ramp. The problem with ramp is that it can be it can be a risky gambit to do nothing but develop against a highly aggressive deck. And again, the other caveat here is if your opponent has a one-card answer or a very efficient removal, you could be in trouble. So I'm really dying to get more than just the quick start rules because this is also a card where I, I saw it and I thought to myself, okay, I need to know more about how it works because the other card I thought of immediately was the First Legion Snow Trooper which gives uh, an Imperial unit plus two plus zero and overwhelm when it attacks and overwhelm as a keyword says deal excess damage to the opponent's base, right? Uh, what happens or, but uh, when atta uh, attacking a damaged unit, it gains plus two plus uh, zero to overwhelm. But so in my head, I'm like, okay, well what happens when I have the overwhelm keyword on this and I deal damage to the first unit now I also get to deal damage to a second unit. Does Overwhelm apply to both or just the first? Because if it applies to both because of like a fun interaction, like this could also become a finisher, right? Like there's a lot of really cool interactions that I want to have sorted out now. I am leaning towards the fact that it's one or the other. It's because it's it says the excess damage. So you have this pocket of damage and then you probably get to you have to choose because say you may deal like it's not like a trigger on the stack or whatever like you choose it's okay is it going to base is it going to a unit and frankly i mean hey options are good choice is delicious we like it so i i think that if there is an upgrade that can give this just standard overwhelm even if it's only doing one or the other the fact that you have choice is incredible because what if yeah. they what if you what if you do crush their entire board and suddenly they just drop weenie after weenie to chump block it if you don't have standard overwhelm then you're not getting anything done um i oh god i just the artwork too it just looks like it looks menacing it looks like it is just this imposing thing the fact that the artwork is from the perspective of potentially those units that are like entrenched and and yeah. defending you're looking up at this menacing thing it's got like the Jordy laforge goggle kind of vision going on it's got cyclops vision you know it, yeah it looks like a bulldog with cyclops's visor like it looks like it's ready to pounce or something but also hit you with the biggest laser blasts i've ever seen like it is imposing is a great way to word it as far as the art goes so that's the last that we got again today being August 22nd. It is about 6 p.m. Eastern time. We are not responsible for any spoilers or leaks that come after this until the next episode. We got a, a pretty good um, episode today. Again, Doa couldn't be here with us today because he's tied up with some of his... Uh, I've got all kinds of cool esports jobs that I have to do because I'm cool and whatever and stuff. Says the guy who... Couldn't wait to do it tomorrow because he has to travel for his own casting gig. 
and I'm the one who's I I only get to do remote work this weekend, so boo me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna argue. It's I'm not upset about having to go. Yeah, to... We, we all have good problems to have. Exactly. I'm I have a trip paid to go to Las Vegas to cast Flesh and Blood National Championships. I'm happy about that. Um, ultimately, today's topic is going to be two lanes, two lane games, the strategies, um, and some of the the restrictions involved, and how to approach it, the, the benefits, etc. And it's great that you're here, Charmer, obviously, not just because, uh, you know, you make sure that my blood pressure remains high and active at all times, but ultimately... Yeah. Because you're also somebody who has ex- exceptional amounts of experience within two-lane games. You were a a significant part of the Elder Scrolls Legends, which was a, two, a two-lane game. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not familiar with the Elder Scrolls Legends, it was a digital card game that was produced by Bethesda, um, Direwolf Digital, and then later Sparky Pants. And the game itself had some similarities to Hearthstone and also to Star Wars Unlimited, where the attacker gets to choose targets. So whenever I say that, what I mean is, uh, if you're coming from like Magic the Gathering, you just say, I'm attacking, and then the opponent gets to decide how to block. But if you've played a game like Hearthstone or the Elder Scrolls Legends or Star Wars Unlimited, when you're attacking, you say, I'm attacking the base or I'm attacking this unit. And that's a that's a really important piece of this puzzle. Now, the Elder Scrolls Legends also did have two lanes. That game was a little bit different. Their lanes were called the field lane and the shadow lane. So the shadow lane, when you played a unit there, it had cover for one turn so that you could kind of like hide your unit for for one turn to be safe, if you will. This game, however, does not have that. So it's going to be even more so important to have a presence in both lanes. And that was something that I really wanted to highlight for this episode, because One of the things that I keep hearing when I have conversations with other people or I see conversations in the Discord or even just on Twitter or wherever is this kind of talk about like, you know, if you and your opponent are fighting for one lane and you start losing presence in that lane, you can just switch to the other one and race them. But it doesn't really work that way in practice, right? Because if I play a unit in, we'll call it the ground arena, and you play one in the air, On future turns, whenever you go to play to the ground, you have to ask yourself, am I going to be able to just get rid of that unit right away, right? Because I already have presence there. So if I've got a 3-3 and you want to play a 2-2 on the ground, well, you have to assume I'm just going to attack in to your unit to get rid of it because mine will survive. There's almost like no reason not to unless I'm purposefully trying to race your base damage. But otherwise, that's called a value trade if you're not familiar in card games. So in a game like this, it's going to be really important that you try to establish a presence in both arenas because you don't want to get into a scenario where your opponent has full control of the zone. So in the Elder Scrolls Legends, one of the decks that I was very well known for piloting was called Midrange Sorcerer, and it used, in that game, it was called Ward. It's basically Shield from Star Wars Unlimited. It used units with Shield to make value trades. So I play a unit, it has a shield. When you play yours, instead of attacking you directly, I attack your units and then you fall behind because eventually by me just trading like that and getting value, I'll have four or five units. And then anything you play in my field will die immediately and I'll have leftover units to continue to damage you, right? That is something you you just don't want to happen because then you do have to abandon a lane and that feels bad. So the fact that both lanes in this game 
are essentially open lanes, right? Meaning anytime you play something, unless you already have Sentinel or, or something else there, you have to assume your opponent will try to target it. And because this game does have shields, just like Elder Scrolls Legends had Ward, I think there's going to be a premium kind of placed on how you navigate. So when we talk about like aggression, for example, and we keep saying like, hey, I'm just going to, you know, play things and race face. That'll work in the first couple of turns. But if I'm playing stuff that has big health pools where I can trade into your, you know, smaller aggressive unit and then survive, think of like Boba Fett, right? He comes down with that seven health. If he gets to kill two or three units before he comes off the board, then that means that I'm probably on the ground anyway, scaling harder so that in the future, you're never going to get to be aggressive again. So there's going to be this balance. Doesn't matter how many cards, right? So we talk about, you know, the other reveal, uh, Starwing Scout. If you have the initiative, it dies, you draw two cards. Doesn't matter unless you can start getting to a point where you can match or overtake the number of units I have in space or on the ground. I will always be able to suppress your offense from that point on. So fighting for control with units uh, and then obviously with our events and our actions and things like that, but just fighting for control of the space is, I think, going to be a really big deal. And I don't think that it's really like settled in because people haven't been able to go through the motions very well yet. It's going to take some getting used to i think for a lot of players who even those who are seasoned card players if you don't have experience with a two-lane game then this is going to be a rude awakening where you you might fall into the traps of well hey i'm already super strong on the ground i can race you there but you never know what's coming around the bend and i think that the other part about this is that this gonna this is going to put a lot of value on sentinels because one thing that you may you may have to lean into is your strength, which is either ground or space. But if your opponent can outscale you at the at the other lane, and they just drop a sentinel on your powerful lane, that might buy them a turn to continue to establish another lane, and then eventually outpace you on that particular lane. I think the fact that this game is cut in two, into two lanes, and dividing your attention and your resource management. It's going to test precisely that, your resource management. Because right now, a lot of card gamers, when it talks about resource management, and I'm talking about this from outside of the scope of just paying for the cards with the resources available to you, I'm talking about the cards in your hand themselves. Right now, when it comes to resource management, most players are learning and becoming better at when to over when to not overextend, when to overextend, when to dump your hand. Because the scariest thing in card gaming is when you're playing off the top of your deck and you don't know how to do that. I think with this, this is a different type of resource management. It's the positioning of those resources. It's the division of those resources that you're committing to the board. Before, there was no decisions to be made. It's there's a board to play, and you just have to decide how that card you're playing interacts with the card already in that play. Now it's like, do I even put this card? Do I even play to this lane here or do i shore up a weak space lane you know and i think that this is going to add a, a a layer of complexity to the game where the best players that are out there will know when to throw something to the wolves in a lane or when to abandon it completely or when to actually fight for a lane that you know your opponent wants to have 
there will be a lot of that. There is also, there's a reason why you want a presence in both lanes. And there's also, I think, going to be a premium on cards that can affect both lanes. And that's, they go, they go hand in hand. That's why I want to highlight it, right? So when you think about Vader as a, a leader, for example, or even Luke, with their abilities, they can still impact the space arena, right? Vader on the attack can still choose to essentially force crush, uh, you know, a, a starfighter, right? He can deal that damage to the space. There is no limitation there. Luke can provide shields to a space unit. So those are very powerful effects that allow you to kind of have an impact in both areas. We've kind of seen it on the top end as well with Emperor uh, Palpatine when that was revealed, right? He comes into play on the ground. He's a 6-6 with Overwhelm, but you can deal 6 damage divided among any enemy units. So he's a unit where you can play him to help shore up your ground while also asserting your dominance in the air if needed. That's going to be a really powerful play pattern. And I think that as more cards get revealed, it's the sort of thing that you're going to want to pay a bit of attention to is how can I impact both zones in order to make sure that I don't fall so far behind that I am stuck racing. I actually think that if you ever get to a point where you're saying, okay, like I, I've just like lost the air, I've lost the ground, I have to race, I think the game's probably already over for you. I know it's very early to say because, you know, we have a lot of cards that can still be revealed. We haven't seen very many like area of effect things, whether it's, uh, you know, board wipes or even just zone wipes. It wouldn't shock me if we see like, you know, deal a bunch of damage to ground units, deal a bunch of damage to space units, whatever. But until we have those, I think that there's, again, going to be this emphasis on you play your units and then you fight for control of the space. And honestly, I think that that's going to be a really good gameplay pattern because that allows us to live these Star Wars fantasies as well, right? Nobody wants a thing where like, well, yeah, I played my Obi-Wan, but it's just like you and me attacking each other's base the entire game. Like, that's not fun, let's be honest. So... I like the idea of the play patterns almost in many ways forcing you to interact with your opponent's units because uh, there's not really a better way to get in the way. Blocking in this game, you have to think about it like this. Blocking in this game is actually a proactive thing. Yes, some units have Sentinel. You can plop those down. Your opponent has to attack them. But in a traditional sense, like you know, Magic the Gathering, if you want to quote unquote block a unit, the best way to block it is to attack it first. So that's actually how you block. You establish your presence. They play a unit and you block it by just ramming your unit into it before they can get any value out of it, right? Uh, it's just you taking the proactive action of like, that was my action. And there is going to be a lot of this kind of dancing back and forth between players throughout the sequence of a turn as well. So that's another thing that you have to consider is, you know, maybe... I do want to get some units in space, right? But I, I do my first couple actions on ground, and then when my opponent is out of resources or they've taken the initiative and I know that they're not going to punish me for playing into a zone where they already have control, now I can dump two or three units so that next turn I have a presence there, right? 
So that jockeying for position on, on actions, you know, you talked about resources. It's not just cards in hand either. There's resources on the table. There's resources in terms of your cards, but there's also resources in your actions per turn and how they go back and forth. It's going to be really, really cool. Well, for the resource part, like what I'm what I was sort of alluding to is is it's an additional decision that you have to make about allocating those resources, because before it, you know, if something has an on play effect, sure, you can decide where you want to do it. But if it's just a vanilla unit, the, the decision tree ends at do I play it or do I not play it? That's basically where it ends because it ends up in the same dang place and um ultimately there are other games that have inklings of positional related importance for example in hearthstone in hearthstone you get to decide where the unit goes in between something to the left of something and that has significant importance because oftentimes if something has like a cleave effect or if something has uh, a uh, a like on deploy if it buffs adjacent units you want to put it between the right things and sometimes you have to plan out where they're going to go but at the end of the day they're all in the same battlefield it's one lane and you can attack and 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 bump into whatever you want the other game that I was thinking about that involved uh, a, a very different version of this would be Star Wars CCG with the different locations. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You're going to get blown out of the water by an opponent who spreads their their forces thinner and presses their thumb on you in that regard and, and is very oppressive in that in that case. But then again, this whole concept of where to split your resources is now very prevalent in a lot of games that if you look beyond the surface, Marvel Snap, three different lanes. Where do I play my stuff? Artifact, three different mm-hmm. boards. Which ones do I want to, you know, commit to? Gwent, you have to win two of three rounds. And when and like those those each of those rounds is a fresh new board, as it were. So there's an a, a lot of concepts, strategies that you can borrow from other card games to shore up your gameplay in this resource allocation is more out there uh and and more layered in other games or not sorry it's not more layered in other games i'm saying it's it's more layered than you may suspect it is in other games and i think that what star wars is doing is just really giving you a black and white just very contrasted version of this which is hey you choose space or you choose land and the the thing about that also charmer is that in tessel that unit you have in hand you could decide where it goes in here the decision starts with your deck building and that is a huge huge extra extra little sprinkle of from star wars U. Yeah, I love that it capitalizes on the themes of the Star Wars universe while also challenging you from a deck building perspective, because like I said, I don't think you can get away with just ignoring a zone outright. So just trying to say, like, I'm just going to go full aggression, never block, and I'm just going to flood the ground so that I always know I have more presence there. I I just have a hard time buying that that's going to be a winning strategy. So... With that in mind, then you have to start saying, well, what units do I want in the air? What units do I want in the ground? What kind of 
when I when I do that, right, like what kind of presence do I want in one zone or the other? If I want to focus on one, maybe it's more supporting units in space, for example, because again, we haven't seen stuff revealed. So there might be stuff where it's like you play it in space and it buffs your ground units or vice versa. And so it forces your opponent to attack into them, which slows down their offense while also giving you some benefits or some bonuses in the interim, right? Like there's a lot of, I think, different ways that we're going to navigate deck building, but that's that's part of the interesting bit for me, right? Like how do you solve that puzzle? And it's going to be even more interesting. And you know, I'm a huge fan of this. I know you're a huge fan of this. Once you go to draft and you're drafting, how many times are you going to say in pack three, like, I really want this ground unit, but I've only got like a small number of space units and I need to shore that up, right? Or maybe I take this thing that I don't have in my aspects just because I'm short in one spot or the other. There's so many pieces that I just can't wait to like get my hands on. That's one of the nice as like parts of this game is the fact I'm trying to like I'm actually trying to like actively depart from saying aspect uh, because it's a it's a game mechanic. One of the pieces of Star Wars U that is starting to show its fangs as it were is how deep it actually is because the gameplay and the mechanics are very straightforward. I bump into you, you bump into me, we trade damage counters, first to zero loses, bingo, bang, boom. That's how it goes. The initiative token, so damn cool. Um, the two lanes, the the fact that you can't just drop something in both lanes. I still believe there's going to be a card that allows you to play in two lanes. I still believe that, and I still believe it's going to be the Z95 Headhunter, but that's just me. <laughs> um, but... Part of this is like we're talking about, like is is the deck building aspect and the fact that even like you and I'm glad you mentioned mentioned draft because you know if you see a, you might get to a point where you're like actively hate drafting space units because you just you just want your opponent not to have them or you want you know like but it's it's a it's a whole extra layer of trying to build a functional deck when you're building a deck or when you're drafting a deck you're thinking i need you know at least from hearthstone or even in, in magic you're like i need some kind of curve i you don't want to get you want your high end your top end to be relatively thin you want like two or three big stuff but you have to sort of say i need a couple i need a one drop i need a bunch of two drops a bunch of three drops a few four drops a few five drops and then like maybe one or two six and seven drops to just round it out now, the conversation is, I need all that, but do I need it in both? And what I think the two-lane system is going to push deck builders into is there's going to be kind of like a situation, and I and I, I want to give a shout-out again to Citizen Keen of Star Wars UDB, of SWDB.com for, for putting uh, that stuff together, but he's also they're implementing new graphics and stuff and what i want to see when people if if that site eventually becomes a deck building site is i want the percentage i want decks to have a very prominent percentage of space ground because my suspicion is going to be that the best decks in the game are going to be 75 25 decks and the 25 of whatever lane you're ignoring or that you're not favoring is going to be very specific units stuff like okay i'm going to drop my one drop and two drop in space three drop is going to be a high high value sentinel 
and then I'm going to start building in space. And then, oh, okay, they're, they're building on the ground. I'm going to drop another fat sentinel. But like 10 of my cards or, or, or 15 of my cards are ground units. The rest are focused on space. But the ones for the lane that I'm not favoring are going to be brick shit houses that are meant to yeah, just stall just work must answer bombs right just to stall things out where even if they don't have sentinel your opponent just says i can't let that stay there sort of thing yes but i i stand by it i, I truly believe that i mean we're going to see more cards and, and it's stupid to make yeah. predictions now but my guess is that the best decks that are out there are going to be heavily leaning of like 66 to 75 percent in one lane I think it's going to depend on the factions, to be honest, because, or excuse me, aspects. I need to uh, make sure I'm clear as well. Factions, is, factions are Gwent. That's Gwent. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the reason I say that is because cunning, I think, is going to be one where you're going to benefit more from a 50-50 split because you'll want to be able to take advantage of the the tempo openings, right? I think that that specific aspect just based on what we've seen so far is going to lend itself to making it hard for your opponent to cover everything because i i know that we haven't seen a lot of cards revealed yet but i fully expect there to be cards with saboteur for example in cunning and we've already seen cards like waylay and now boba fett i just think that there's going to be a lot of like combat tricks and things like that and just stacking one like lane to assert dominance means your combat tricks don't have as much value as they do in scenarios where you're kind of like it's like basketball you're trying to force the one-on-one and then just have the better plays right i think that that's going to be like cunning whereas vigilance i i truly feel like vigilance is going to be like i'm going to assert dominance in one area and then I'm going to like use restore to make it so you can't race me in the other, for example, right? There's a lot of different ways it can go. A lot of cards still yet to be revealed, but I do think that your deck style will depend on your aspects because I, I fully expect different play styles. I do also want to give a shout out as well to uh DB because you said, you know, maybe it'll be a, a deck builder in the future. I, I don't know if they want me to say this now because I saw on Twitter they were having some issues with bugs, but... Uh, they already have deck building as a, a feature, so hopefully the bugs are sorted out by the time this airs on Saturday. Again, we're uh, recording this on Tuesday the 22nd, but if you create an account, you can already start building decks. I created my account. You should create your account. That's what I'm going to say. They were very kind to us uh, this week, and I think that most of the community if not all of it, is has been very supportive of everybody else, and we love oh, that. Oh, everybody's been great. It's been a good community so far. Let's keep it that way. Even with me. I th- like I said, I think I have my immunity built up, so. Yeah. I'm going yeah. to be real here. It's it's the uh, the Princess Bride. You've been taking a little bit of the charm or poison every day to build up your tolerance. That must be it. That must be it. Uh, voluntarily... Probably not. Force-fed? Definitely. That sounds more like it. Uh, Any last words about Tulane magic before we get to the mailbag? Yeah, I would just say that as more cards are revealed, I want you to think about this question. If my opponent played that, you know, whether the card has Sentinel or not, right? If my opponent played that, would that be something I would be okay with leaving on the board? Or would I be more inclined to attack into that versus try to reduce the health of their base because 
I think you're going to find that the more powerful cards in the game are ones where you say, I wouldn't want them to continue to have that. And that's going to be kind of like that hallmark. Now, again, lots of cards to be revealed. That's not the only benchmark for whether or not a card is good. But I think that is at least a good starting place is, hey, if my opponent played that, how comfortable am I that I can leave that around for a couple of turns? Beautiful. There you have it, friends. That has uh, concluded our discussion about two lanes within the game. Some of the strategies, some things to look out for, and there's so much left to dig into with this game. I know that we mentioned this almost every single episode, but damn it, we're 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 approaching. We're hey man, we're encroaching on September. September might as well be Halloween. Halloween is pretty much Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving is like holding hands with christmas so in reality the game's coming out like tomorrow is what i'm telling myself yeah basically so we need to be ready as soon as possible and also i'm just looking forward to it uh, we touched on it quite a bit in this episode but the game really does hit that nice sweet spot of easy to pick up hard to master right i think that's the hallmark of pretty much every good card game and uh, all things i'm seeing are pointing towards that for this game and that makes me excited. I'm like, I'm finding myself actively thinking about the game uh, a lot more often, and it's probably only going to get worse as we get closer to launch. One of my favorite scenes from Solo, the movie, is when Han Solo says, I got a really good feeling about this. I thought that that was actually kind of <laughs> clever. Everybody was probably expecting the bad feeling, which just was, it's in every single Star Wars related content, more or less. But the fact that they just prefaced that whole thing, because I think it's like, yeah, it's like one of the more, more early movies, but he's just like, I got a really good feeling about this, which is just such... It's such me because I don't think I would. I, that's how I would feel. I've learned since then. I am the Han, I am the older Han Solo, but that Han Solo would have been me because I would have totally thought that things would have been great and things would have worked out. And yeah, but, and here we are. Uh, but that leads us into, you know what it is. You know what it is, Charmer. Yeah, it's the good feeling mailbag. I got a bad feeling about this. I have a bad feeling about this. I've got a bad feeling about. Okay. Quiet. So it's actually the bad feeling mailbag, but we're not going to, we're not going to. No, no, I have a good feeling about this. Do you? Okay. I do. So last week we talked about our, the submissions that we get at our email address, which is wamparadiopodcast at gmail.com. And this is a submission from Larry H. Could have been Larry D, like Larry David, which would have been so cool. But it's Larry H., and this is a, a few this might be a week and a half old uh sometimes we we can't get to every question but we got to this one it took us a little while so thank you for the submission larry h question is as of writing this we have only seen five leaders well we've got a bonus one bingo bango i think we got a couple bonus ones i think we got chewy how many total leaders do we have now is it seven so we have luke and vader we have boba fett Director Krennic, Chewbacca, Leia, and I think that's it so far. You said Fett, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's say six. As of writing, we've got six leaders. How many leaders do you think 
are in the first set. Knowing that there are 252 cards in the set and most of them are common from the starter decks, what's your guess uh, or ideal amount? I personally like to see around 9 or 10. Do you think leaders will always be commons outside of the starter decks? If not, do you think it could... Uh, you think it could cause an issue in power level between rarities? It's a very good question. Uh, let's tackle the first bit here, which is how many do you think we're going to get? I would suspect that you're you're going to get leaders that are... You're going to have leaders that are obviously going to have the duality of of the different uh, the different aspects, right? Um, do they all have villainy or heroism in them? So far, yeah. So that was something that I was going to highlight when I shared my answer. Okay, but, yeah, so, so, so you go first. All the leaders. So my answer to this question uh, is 10 or 12. So it'll be 10 if they give us the two in the starter decks, right? I expect starter decks to just be Luke and Vader. We know from discussions at Gen Con that Luke and Vader are not available in packs. They're only in the two-player starter decks. And we know that because there was a question that was asked about, you know, whether or not we would ever get to use those heroes in limited play. And the answer was, you know, not unless they're reprinted or something, right? So they're only in the starter decks. So you have those two. And then what I personally think we're going to get is a common leader for every pairing of aspect with villainy and with heroism. So I think we're going to have a villainy command, a villainy cunning, a villainy aggression um, of a villainy vigilance, right? And then we're going to have the same thing for the heroism side. So that would give us 10 counting the Luke invader. And then I say or 12 because I think that we might get for villainy and heroism, perhaps anyway, one that's a dual aspect. And that's like a rare leader, right? I expect the suite of common ones because uh, one of the questions that I had asked at Gen Con was, you know, how are you going to make sure that people have enough stuff to play limited, right? If you have to have a hero, because we come from flesh and blood, right? So in flesh and blood, there are tokens that come in the packs for the different heroes for when you're playing draft or whatever. Now, they wouldn't give me any sort of pack ratios or anything, but I was told, uh, and I quote, everything you need to play limited or sealed will be in your packs. So given that, these leaders we see with the common value i am assuming again this was not confirmed but i'm assuming you're probably guaranteed one per pack similar with there's probably one common base per pack and then we've already seen that there are you know rare bases we got the 25 health give a shield one so i think that we might have the you know four heroism four villainy leaders and then we might get a rare leader like that's maybe super rare we don't know all of our rarities like a legendary leader as well that is double heroism and another one that's double villainy. And that might be like the Luke invader that are not the starter ones. So that's my guess. I think that you're, I think that first of all, I think the pack seating is correct. I think that there's always going to be a leader and there's always going to be a base within there. And I think that those are just, I mean, they're, they're slated as commons, but I think that you still need to draft them. Uh, and what I think is going to happen is if you just don't have one, then you just don't get one. Like, I think that it's something that you're going to have to be cognizant of when you're drafting is, well, if I don't have a leader, then I don't have that built in unit and those two aspect discounts uh, or, or whatever they were. Um, I think it's possible. Again, we don't know what the specific draft rules are yet or the pack seating. 
what I am very much hoping for is that these these heroes, these leaders, are not anything more than rare. And the reason being, it's the same thing as equipment in Flesh and Blood uh, or lands and whatever. If it is a important element to the actual gameplay itself, if it's a it's it's a big thing it's like it's even goes beyond lands or equipment this is something that actually is inherently directly related to the deck building process so the double like for example we saw vigilance as a as a double vigilance legendary event you need to find a leader maybe maybe there's a maybe there's a specific base you want but there's a double vigilance leader, and that helps you. So it's okay. This is the base because I want to unlock aggression, but I need double vigilance here. So I don't want to pay over the top to play these cards. Well, maybe there's a vigilance Leia or something, a double vigilance Leia or like a Bail Organa or God knows what, where you're you're playing it, and it's. but if it's legendary, then it becomes difficult to get because what if that deck is good? Then suddenly you're short printing and you're limiting access to players playing the game the way they want to play the game, which is deck building and, and playing within this aspect pool. I can get that powerful cards should be legendary, but there's no way, no shape, no form that I foresee a successful, or or rather, I don't see I don't see a world where there's no pushback to a leader being revealed as a legendary, because if it's playable and if it's strong, then you're creating a huge problem. In Flesh and Blood, there are legendary leaders. Shiana is a legendary leader. It is an expensive card to acquire. Is it viable? Not really. Is it competitive? No, it's not. Is it f- cool and fun to play? Hell yeah, it's fun to play. But I ain't winning tournaments. It ain't going to get you, you know, uh, those W's that you covet. So that's that could be maybe the back door into printing these kinds of leaders. But again, so, if, it, if, it becomes, if it becomes viable and strong, it's bad. So I have uh, a bit of a rebuttal, which is, one, it depends on what the print distribution is, right? Because if they are printed at the same rate as other legendaries, then I think they end up being cheaper than the other legendaries. Vigilance is a good example, right? Control decks are probably going to want to run three copies of Vigilance, but they're only going to need the leader once. And if they're printed at the same rate as Vigilance, then those leaders will be very easy to acquire likely cheaper because the demand will actually be higher for the vigilance because you need three copies. Now, we don't know what their print runs will be like, so we don't know if that's the case, but I could see a situation where you still have a high rarity leader for the sake of keeping limited a a bit more reasonable because that's the other side, right? We want powerful leaders because like, let's be honest, everybody loves their favorite characters and you want some like cool ultra rare version of your leader. Now, I personally would like to see that be done through alternate art chase cards or foils or whatever. But let's be honest, like if you open a really powerful Vader leader, like you're going to be really excited as a player that creates that feel good moment. But you also don't want those to be like in the un, if they're a bomb in the limited format, you don't want that to be in like an uncommon or even really like a rare slot because you're again going to feel bad if you're not somebody who opens those. So I could see a scenario where they do still print legendary leaders, but they also just don't short print them and they put them in the same distribution as the other ones so that they're still easily accessible as far as deck building goes. 
I, I'm like, I, yes and no. Like, and again, the thing about it is that you create these feel bad moments where it's like, you know, when they printed Icelander in flesh and blood for the first time and she was a majestic, it's like, yeah, you need one. But every time you opened another one, you felt like an asshole. Like you felt really cheated in that regard. But at the same time, I think that f flesh and blood, when they're printing cards now, they understand that aspect. It's like, okay, there's a, there's a majestic weapon. It's a, it's a rare weapon, to, but we're printing it a third of the amount of everything else. Because you right. can, and, and I think that if they do it that way, you're, you're, you're reducing the feels bad moment, but you're creating the same demand as the three ofs because you're limiting the supply to a third. I think that there's too many headaches and there's too many hoops to jump through in order to balance this properly that you could just avoid it all by putting those cool, you know, unique leaders behind a rare where somebody opens it and like, yeah, you sh maybe you you print half as many as everything else, but you're like, hey, you open it, you f you're not terribly upset that you got yeah. that. I mean, the reality is it's a trading card game and there's not really a good answer one way or the other because it doesn't matter where they put it. If you need it to be competitive, people are still going to have to chase it down, right? Like, let's just say hypothetically they they take uh, your advice. There's no leaders behind any of the, the rares. It's only in the common slots so that they're accessible. But now let's say that they do print like a legendary Luke and a legendary Vader that's just a regular unit, but it's also good and viable. You're still going to have to chase down three of them. And if they're expensive, you're still going to feel bad about it. So I, I think that that's that's just one of those like side effects of the secondary market of trading card games in general. And I think that that's difficult to manage. If it was easy, then all these card game companies would have figured it out by now. And nobody, I think, has the perfect solution. So, uh, again, I stand by my statement earlier, though, that. I think that the the way to like really amp it up and have those feels good moments is if you do it through like a chase version of a card like, hey, I got my really cool Sabine Wren because I got like the alternate art super shiny foil Marvel version. I hope they're going to do that. And I think that they are. I think that that's just the, the nature of the beast now is you hide the chase stuff behind vanity and not strength or, or, or power. So that's uh, that's the mailbag for the week. Uh, again, if you want to submit a question to Wampa Radio, you can do so uh, going to WampaRadioPodcast at gmail.com. You could tweet at Wampa Radio. You could tweet at WatchFlake. You could tweet at that charmer uh, or that charm 3R. And uh, send our boy Doa a message too at GGDOA if you want to get in touch with us. And we're always lurking about on Discord as well. It's been... Um, it's been quite the journey so far, I feel, um, with this show because it fee it's a weird feeling wherein it feels like we've been doing it for a long time, but it's only been 12 weeks. Yeah, you know, I was actually just thinking to myself, like, it it doesn't feel like it's been very long, but also it has been 12 weeks. And so, like, when I say that, it's like, well, it's only 12 weeks, but then I'm like, well, that's three months. It's like a quarter of a year. I'm saying it feels longer Almost. than that. It, like when, in retrospect, like when I'm typing the show notes and I'm like uploading stuff and doing whatever, and uh, uh, I look at it, I'm like twelve. 
12? That's it? It feels like we've been at this. And I think it's because it's the content, because we have so much yeah. to say, and there's never any... It feels like when we go back and do a callback to something, like if we do a callback and talk about, you know, uh, Ozil biting it, where it feels like, oh, well, you know, like the callback we're doing is to a movie from, you know, the 70s. But yeah, yeah. So it, it, it is funny because of the content of Star Wars, it does feel like we've been doing it for forever. But I go the other, uh, the other side or the other direction, which is because it's about a game that hasn't even released yet. And there's still so much I feel like that we need to talk about. It feels like it hasn't been long enough. So I think it depends on which hat I'm wearing. If I'm wearing my general Star Wars fan hat, it's like, man, we've been doing this for a long time. And then when I'm wearing my very specific Star Wars Unlimited hat, it's like, we've been doing this for 12 weeks. Like, that's insane because there's still so much to cover. <laughs> that's the problem is that we have a lot to cover. We've got a lot of time to do it, too, because there's still so much to talk about and still so much left to behold. And that's a good thing. That's a good feeling. Um, I will say this. Everybody who I've introduced the game to has been cursing me for introducing to the game because they they're like i cannot i cannot be as addicted I, to this that i am i had some folks message me from the runeterra community so if you're listening shout out to you wick saying hey this looks kind of cool can you send me some more info about it and i was like oh yeah sure and you know gave them access to the discord and the site and the quick start rules and let them know we were doing a podcast and they're like oh sweet i'll get caught up on all that so thank you for uh checking it out wick and and other folks but i still for me i i keep going back to that piece of just like the best compliment that i could have seen for a game ever was again my buddy jason who is a former game designer for the elder scrolls legends was also one of their pro players like he was a top finisher at their first uh master series etc and when he said that it was like the best first game experience like this was the exact uh tweet after gen ken he said on your suggestion i tried the game it was the best first game of a game i've ever played the mechanics felt exciting but familiar won my first game while at 29 for five turns meaning his base had 25 damage he was trying to stall using my vader to choke my own unit which died to untap a unit needed to clear the space lane perfect so what he means is he essentially used his Vader to kill the one one that lets you ready a unit. Um, but he was just like the theming was so perfect and it felt so great. I, again, former Tesla guy. That's why all the people that used to follow me from that community, I know if I can get them to even try this game, they will be all in. Enough said. Enough said. And that does it, friends, for another edition of Wampa Radio. We really appreciate you all tuning in. Hope you're doing well. This is also where we invite you to go ahead and, if you haven't already, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Costs you exactly zero credits. Uh, you don't. You, you can't get that. Even Death Sticks cost stuff now. Like it's unreal. Yeah. Not you can't even. Nothing you can get for zero dollars except for subscribing to the channel. And the other option is if you're listening to this on an audio platform, give us a five star review. Trust us. It does so much for us. It does incredible amounts. It takes. 10 seconds to just go ahead and give us five stars and it really 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 helps us out you don't have to believe in a hokey space religion but you do have to believe in the algorithm yeah oh my god um <laughs> the algorithm is going to be 
like this i feel like if the ever there's this like it it feels like this overlording kind like it's like it's he's uh he's in touch with the force it's like oh he's well attuned to the algorithm like it's that kind of ominous you know invisible presence that kind of it connects yeah. us all and all this other nonsense but yeah anywho charmer lock and load buddy let's do this friends thank you so much for listening to the wampa radio broadcast here for charmer for me we love you be kind to one another and as always may the force be with you Thank you.